So, uh, Stuart Mazzell again, lead pastor. Thank you for being here. Thank you for those of you who are joining us online or on the podcast. I want to thank you for being a church that is very generous in, um, in giving time off to your staff. Uh, I read a quote this past week that you cannot fill a moving cup. And I know that's a very simple statement, but it really helps me that uh, sometimes moving all the time, doing things all the time, and cannot be filled. And because you are generous as a church in giving uh, time off this past week, my family and I, we got to have some time to hopefully be still long enough to be filled some. And so thank you for that. I'm also thankful that uh, my friend and co-worker in the gospel, David McIntosh, is here today. And uh, he will be preaching to you. David and I go back a long time. I came, I came in 2000, yeah, came in 2007. What time, when did you come? 2005. 2005. So he's been in the presbytery longer than me. So he's my senior, <laughs> which is good because you're actually younger than I am, aren't you? Surely. Surely. <laughs> if you didn't hear that, I said I'm you're actually. I'm less mature than you are. I, <laughs> I said he's actually older, younger than me, and he said surely. So, yes, I, I look older than him for sure. Um, but I'm so thankful that he is able to preach to us today and that I get to listen to my friend who is, uh, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, uh, but David is probably my favorite person in our presbytery. Don't tell the rest of the presbytery that. We've served together for a long time, and I'm just... Looking forward to what God's going to do in and through David. I would like to pray for him before uh, he preaches. Uh, Father, we know that uh, your word always goes out and it accomplishes what you send it out to do. And today we ask that by your spirit, you would send out your word with power. That your Holy Spirit would be at work not only in David, but in us. And we would see something of the glory of Jesus in a way that we have never seen it before. Uh, Give us that opportunity by your spirit, and we pray that you will fill us all, that we will respond with faith, with repentance, and with real obedience. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, our one true God. Amen. the way or must make it. Well, um, everybody else has introduced themselves this morning, so let me introduce myself. I'm, I'm David McIntosh. I'm Stuart's little brother. Uh, I'm glad to be with you. Uh, I'm glad to do what little brothers do. Uh, Stuart uh, thinks he's going to get a, a Sunday off, but uh, as we discussed uh, what I might preach, or I told him what I was interested in, I said, I, I want to look at Revelation 4 and 5 with you. And he said, that's great. I'm going to be in Revelation uh, 3 next week. So if I raise any questions, you know, if you have any questions about Revelation and what it means and what's going on there, just ask my big brother next week, and, uh, and he, will, he will make those clarifications. So I, I now at least have one person that's going to pay attention to what I'm saying. Um, well, with, with that little bit uh, out of the way, uh, if you would, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to, to Revelation uh, chapter 4. Uh, I think every time I start a sentence with well, I had a, uh, I had a teacher one time that every time I did start a sentence with well, he would say, that's a deep subject, don't fall in. 
And uh, either way, whether it's because I said well or because I said turn to Revelation, I think most people think Revelation is, is deep. It's the way we normally uh, think of it. It's, it's, it's like some uh, divine Sudoku puzzle, and God has given us a few of the pieces, and if you think lo- long enough, if you're savvy enough, you can fill in the rest of the pieces and kind of figure out what's, uh, what's going on. Uh, but I just want to remind you, even before we read the word, that that's not the way John introduced the book to us. Uh, John introduces the book to us in Revelation 1 and verse 1 as the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the concealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he introduced himself uh, in chapter 1 and verse 9 as your brother in the tribulation. Now what that tells you is that what is being discussed here and what is being passed on here is being passed on by those who are facing life and death situations. They're in the midst of tribulation. They don't have the leisure uh, to puzzle out uh, leisure, you know, puzzle things like Sudoku puzzles and whatnot. What they're trying to work out, what we're often trying to work out, is how do I fit the gospel message in, this this gospel message that, um, that Christ has come and Christ has won the victory over sin and Satan with all the things I see in the world and all the things I see in life. In other words, Revelation is answering the question that you and I are often asking, and that is, if Christ has won the victory in that way, if God is sovereign and God is good and he's working all things together for good in that way, how does that fit with what I see going on in the world? How does that fit with what I see going on in in my church or in my family or, when I'm really honest, with what's going on in my own heart? And and sometimes we want to ask, what in heaven's name is going on here? And in Revelation, what God does is he says, my child, let let me rephrase your question in a more helpful way. It's not a what in heaven's name is going on. It's it's, it's what in heaven is going on, or if, if, if that's bad English, what is going on in heaven? That's the question you need to be asking. And so uh, Revelation uh, 4 gives us a picture of that. God says, I'm going I'm to show what's going on in heaven. I'm going to show it to John, and John's going to describe it to you. And you'll be able to see what's going on uh, in heaven, even, even right now. Now, he's going to describe it in words. So Revelation is interesting. Even though it's full of words, it's drawing word pictures for you. So the key to Revelation is you have to see with your ears, and you want to see what the text says uh, to see. And so I think there are a couple of helpful analogies, as we, uh, even as we come to reading the text, that will help you in that. We typically think of Revelation correctly as apocalyptic. Now, that's kind of in the modern era taken on the idea of disastrous. That's not what apocalyptic means. It means revelatory. It means it's revealing uh, something. And so um, Revelation is the picture book of the Bible. But the picture is impressionistic. Uh, When we lived in St. Louis, the art museum was famed for having lots of Monet's, a famous impressionistic painter. You could go up to those paintings and you could see all the the brush strokes and the layers of of paint. And, you know, the art critics would just be fascinated with all the ways in which the colors were mixed. But if you're looking at a Monet at that level of detail, you can't see the picture. You need to step back and see the whole picture, let that make an impression on you, and then you will have communicated what Monet was trying to communicate. Revelation is the same way. 
If you get lost in the details, you will not see the picture, and if you don't see the picture, you won't get the, you won't get the message. Another way of, of thinking of it as a, as a picture book is, uh, you know, for younger folks maybe, uh, the modern way that we see picture books. We see motion picture books. We call them movies, you know, and in many ways, Revelation is the motion picture of the Bible. And, and John, in his description of what he's seen, will do what many, uh, he will do verbally what many modern directors do with a camera. And, and he will give you different camera angles on things. He will, he will give you the opening scene, you know, the big panoramic opening scene. He will swoop in and a fly over, and you'll see the churches of, of Asia Minor. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll come into this glorious section. And sometimes uh, what John does is he, is he kind of pans with the camera. Uh, sometimes he, he focuses in. Sometimes he sees, you see the same scene from multiple different angles. He repeats it. And, and you know, because you're used to watching movies, that any time the camera is panning and it pauses for a moment on something and then moves on, you know that something it paused on is something critical to understanding the story. And John does all of that in this uh, passage before us. Now, now, who's actually the best at putting that all together? Children. Children love the book of Revelation because they're used to having books read to them. When you read a book to a child, what happens? You're reading words, and they begin to have a movie playing in their heads, and they, and, and they love it, and they're great at it. You know, that is actually how we're told to handle the book of Revelation. Revelation uh, 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So I want to actually do something a little interesting with you this morning, if, you, if you're up for it. I want you to keep your Bible open on your lap, because we are going to look at the details of this to some degree. But I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's help. And then as I read, you don't have to look at your Bible. You have to listen with your ear and see if you can see what you hear when I read. And so let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we do that. Our God and Father, we thank you that you're a God who is not silent, you're a God who speaks, and you speak for the purpose of revealing yourself to us, not only as the Lord God Almighty, but as our rescuer, as our redeemer, as the God who has so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You did not send your son into this world that the world would be condemned, but that the world might be saved through him. And so as we would turn to this book that is the revelation of Jesus Christ, would you give us ears to see what your word says? And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Revelation chapter 4 and beginning at verse 1. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And not one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Do you get the picture? If you, uh, if you look up from the picture and you look out from the church, you look out into the, the culture that uh, is surrounding, I think what you would see is a, is, is a trend towards human depravity. Uh, You see political corruption, you would see uh, economic uncertainty, you would see uh, wars on multiple fronts, you see uh, families facing challenges, and uh, you see communities uh, dividing. Uh, The the atmosphere of the day would be anger and and, and violence. And and if you look from there, if you look to the church, uh, what you would uh, probably see is the the optimistic enthusiasm of the church is now beginning to, to wane. 
the, the sense that um, uh, the, the church was going to have this huge influence is now beginning to have the sense that maybe the church is, is smaller than we expected. And even like you've done today, you, you, you take in a, a member or two here or there, some people are coming into the church, but the influence of the church that we expected is not what, uh, what we expected it to be. And the more and more her members become sensitive to that, the more and more they begin to express more fear than faith. Now, if at this point you, you feel some little inclination to raise your hand and say, wait a minute, Pastor McIntosh, are we, are we talking about the church in John's day or are we talking about the church today? Then you've just met your connection with the book of Revelation. Because, you see, we, we are living the Christian life against a similar background and facing a similar temptation to those in John's day when he received the book of Revelation. As, as, we, as we survey the scene around us, we can get the real sense that evil is increasing rather than decreasing. We, we, we can be tempted to ask, Lord Jesus, you said you bound the strong man. You did bind the strong man, didn't you? Uh, you, uh, did you wrap him tight enough? Because it seems like he's got a very long leash if he doesn't have full reign in what he's, uh, in what he's doing. What, what am I missing? Right? It's, a, it's a daunting thing to ask the Lord of glory, what, what, what am I missing? Uh, we, can, um, we can sometimes be like those that Peter spoke to in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Jesus, I know you came. I know you died on the cross. I know you were raised again. We talked about that last week. Now where are you? I know you're coming, but where are you now? What am I missing? And, and I know oftentimes what we, what we think we want or what we think we need is the great big grown-up answer to that. God says, my child, you're not ready for the great big grown-up answer. Let me give you the picture book answer. And if you will survey this scene, you will see enough of the cosmic reality to see what you need to know. And so I, I, there's a ton of material here. I, I understand that. I, I just want to draw your attention to three things that John draws our attention to that, at least according to the ESV, are standing in this passage. You'll notice in chapter 4 and verse 1, there is a door that is standing open. In chapter 4 and verse 2, there is a throne that is standing uh, in heaven. And in chapter 5 and verse 6, there's a lamb standing, though slain. So first of all, there's a, there's a door standing open in heaven that is worth looking into. It's worth passing into. You, you see it there in chapter 4 and verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, now, now the verb tense of, of, of open there uh, tells us this is, uh, this is not a door that was opened. It's a door that was already opened. This is, this is not the door of the Laodiceans in the chapter before, you know, that you have to stand at the door and knock on it to see if anybody will open it. Uh, this is not a door that was opened for John. This is a door that when John saw it, it was already open. It was standing open, as the language of the ESV uh, would have it. And that's what we uh, need to see. But ask yourself this. When do you leave your door standing open? I, I can think of two occasions in which you would leave your door standing open that I think relate to what's going on here in Revelation. The first is you leave your door standing open when you feel no threat, right? 
Some, some of us remember growing up, maybe, maybe you grew up in Sumter, I grew up in Florence, it was probably the same way. You remember, we didn't, we, we didn't lock our doors. We, we left them open. Why? Because we didn't feel any threat. If, if you live in a threatening neighborhood, you don't leave your door standing open. You leave it shut and lock it like we do. most, most of us do at night. So, so what we see here is this door in heaven is standing open because God is not threatened. God is not threatened by anything, and so he's left the door standing up. Satan himself can walk through this door like he did in Job, and God is not threatened at all because that's the kind of God that he is. We need to see that because we don't live the Christian life there. We live the Christian life here. We live the Christian life in enemy-occupied territory. And, and, and Jesus, in the letter to the churches, that is just prior to this passage, said to the church at, at Pergamum in chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, I know where you live. I know, Christian church, that you are living in enemy-occupied territory. You need to know as you live there, I am not threatened by that at all. I am not threatened by that enemy at all. My door is open, and my door stands open for you and to you. And, and in fact, that, that's, that's probably the second reason that we would leave our door open, right? You leave your door open when you're expecting company, right? So does heaven. Heaven's door is standing open because heaven is expecting company because Jesus' invitation has gone out. And Jesus' invitation is to come. Come through the door that's standing open in heaven. You, you see that as he invites John there in the remainder of verse 1. In the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's the, the voice of Christ from the previous chapters, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So, so this door standing open in heaven is, is, is representative in, in many ways, or just even in our own minds, of the standing invitation of Christ to come. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke up upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and I will give rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But friends, I would tell you, as a minister of the gospel and as a student of the scripture, that door will not stand open forever. Jesus has told us there is a day that is coming when the bridegroom will come. He will arrive and he will close that door and it will be closed forever. And those who have not entered by that point will be outside of that door forever, weeping and gnashing their teeth. And that's why I say to you on Christ's behalf, come, come into the door that is open in heaven while it is called today. That door is open today. It is open to you today in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ beckons you, invites you, come into heaven's open door and come and see while there is room. And when you come, you will see the second thing that we see standing in the passage. There is a throne standing in heaven that is worth taking in. We see in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Now from there on, uh, the rest of chapter 4, uh, John goes into describing uh, what's going on uh, on that throne, around that throne, uh, and back and forth. Uh, you, you can get lost in the details of this. Remember, it's a, it, it's an, it, all of it makes up an impressionistic painting, but uh, just, just briefly, if you let your eyes scan down, uh, verse 3, you see the rainbow of God's covenant faithfulness. It, it, it's, full circle. it's come full circle now. It's no longer a bow pointing. It's now a bullseye in the center of heaven. Uh, its appearance, he says, is as emerald. But if you think about that, you know emerald is just green. Rainbow is multicolored. But I think what John may be saying there is it's like the rainbow you know, but it's more substantive uh, because it's the reality of that. 
In verse 4, you see the 24 elders and the 24 thrones, uh, most commonly uh, known as the the patriarchs of the Old uh, Testament and the apostles of the New Testament, here represented of the the entire body of the church from every age, now dressed by Christ, dressed like Christ. In verse 5, you see these Mount Sinai flashes of of God's glory radiating radiating out in in, in peals of thunder. Uh, At verse 7, you come kind of into the creaturely realm, and it it is hard to say, what is John doing here? Is he, is he just using Old Testament language to describe these creatures? Or is he confirming Old Testament language to say, yes, they look exactly like Isaiah said. They look exactly like Ezekiel said. But, but by verse 9, I think you can pick up on the, on, on the pattern of what generally is happening here. From verses 3 to 5, what you get is God's glory radiating out from the throne. And what you get in verses 9 to 11 is the creatures reverberating that glory back to him. That's that's the heartbeat of heaven, if you will. God's glory radiates out from his person, and his people radiate that glory back uh, to him. And all of those details contribute to a singular impression that John has of this throne. He emphasizes it to to us. See if you can catch it. Verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Verse 3, and he who sat there. Verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. Chapter 5 and verse 1, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Can can, can you catch John's singular impression of this throne? That when you enter into heaven's door, you will see at the center of heaven a throne that is standing there, and that throne is occupied by God the Father. And no one will remove him from that throne. That's a picture our prayer life needs to see, isn't it? Uh, It's it's one of the the glories you... uh, you, um, I think it was there in chapter 5 uh, and verse, uh, verse 8. It speaks of the golden bowls of incense um, and, and the golden harps. Your, your, your praise and your prayers have made it to heaven. You, you see them pictured there in chapter 5. But your prayer life here on earth needs to be reminded of that. Because, you know, sometimes our prayer life exposes that we've gotten the creator-creature distinction confused. We have gotten confused about who's the master and who's the servant, right? Because we come barging into heaven in our prayer life and we say, God, here's what I want you to do for me. And if you don't do it in in my way, in my time, I reserve the right to be frustrated with you, to be angry with you, to start popping why questions at you. But you notice in heaven there is no creator, creature, uh, confusion. You notice there in verse 11, chapter 4 and verse 11, they know who is God and who is not. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But by the way, if you, if you even just look at the, um, the verses just before that as, uh, as they're responding to that, you know, here below, you hear people you know, in the church sometimes will say, you know, oh, I'm doing this, I'm going to get a crown for this, get a jewel in my crown for this, right? You, you notice there in verses 9 and 11, uh, when you stand before this throne in heaven, your first instinct is going to be, i got no business wearing a crown here. But you will be so thankful to the grace of the God that sits on that throne that you have something in that crown that is worthy of giving to him and offering to him to say, it is you that I'm after, not your stuff. 
It is not the gifts that I want, it's the giver that I want. And I will cast all of that down that I might have you and have you uh, in worship. And, and, and I think that then speaks as well back into not just our prayers, but the providences that we experience. We, we, we need to put our, our, our biblical theology to work. We need to put what we see here to work in the way in which we live. That God is on a throne in heaven. That God is sovereign. That God is good and he's working all things together for good. What does that mean? That means that whatever I am experiencing right now in his providence is God's sovereign good for me. Whether I can work that detail out or not, whether I can see how to trace that out or not, I can trust his heart in that. What if it doesn't look so good to me? What if it doesn't feel so good to me? What did Jesus tell you? In all the honesty of his heart and all the wisdom of his person, in this world, you will face tribulation. But take comfort. I have overcome the world. And you will overcome the world in me. The the psalmist in Psalm 139 and verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Put that into practice. That means that no disaster, no disease will ever steal from you a single day that the sovereign God has ordained for your life. It also means that you will not find your footing in those days in the horizontal, trying to work out your situation and circumstance or trying to figure out how your situation or circumstance will work out. We find our poise vertically when we look through the door that is standing open in heaven and we see at the center of that heavenly throne room an occupied throne with a sovereign God on it. But how do you know then that he's not just, he's not just powerful, he's not just sovereign, but he's good? Look at his hand. Interestingly enough, another psalmist tells us to do that. In the Psalms of Ascent, in Psalm uh, 123 and verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, to you who are enthroned in the heavens, as servants look to the hands of their master, so I look to your hand, O Lord. Look to the hand. Did you notice the camera angle change when we change from chapter 4 to chapter 5? Did you notice as that camera pans through the scene of the throne room, it pauses on a particular object that you're meant to see. You see it in chapter 5 and verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So, so, so when, when, when John focuses in from taking in this scene, seeing God enthroned in heaven, he looks to God's hand like a servant would look to the hand of his master, and he sees in that, because the right hand, I'm left-handed, sorry. Uh, in his right hand, he sees that scroll, and it is written on the front and on the back. What does that mean? It's full. It cannot be added to. There is no way to add to that. And it is sealed. It is, it is, it is God's d- decree. Now, now, a little bit of a spoiler alert if you, you haven't been through Revelation lately. When you keep reading through Revelation, nothing in the book of Revelation will tell you what's written on that scroll. But as the seals are broken and as the seals are opened, you, you begin to get the sense that whatever is there is God's decree. 
is God's will for the good of his people and for the purpose of history. You get the sense that all of the future purposes of God depend on that decree being opened and being fulfilled. So so much so that you see there in verse 2, a search is put out in all the cosmos to find somebody that is uniquely worthy to open this scroll in that way. They look in the heavens, uh, they they look in the earth, they look under the earth. You see that a mighty angel cries out, verse 2, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? To to, to bring the purposes and the the promises of God to to save and to keep and to bless his people to to fruition. And notice, it's, it's not merely an issue of strength. The angel is already mighty. It's an issue of worthiness. Who carries the unique worth and quality in order to open this and to fulfill it? And no one in heaven is like that. No one on the earth is found. No one under the earth is found. And that is so profound. You notice in verse 4, John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I think actually that's a little bit of a beautiful scene that we ought to pause and take in. Remember, it's John's gospel that gives us the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the, the, the malediction of death and longed to turn it to the benediction of the gospel. Now John in Revelation is weeping in that Christ-like way. That, you know, we, we get into the sentimentalism of Revelation saying, you know, God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. I think the first tears that he will wipe away are these tears. When we weep with him in prayer that the purposes of his glory and grace would be fulfilled, that the purposes of his eternal decree would be fulfilled. And, and you, know, you, you, see, you see, John... John John, I mean, it's just a vision, you know? I mean, you know, calm down. It's, it's, it's not real, it's just a vision. But he knows what the elder says. He also says, John, don't weep, but for a very different reason. John, it's a vision, but you haven't taken the whole vision in yet. That's much of pastoral ministry, isn't it? You're weeping. You're weeping because you haven't taken the whole vision in. You haven't seen the whole picture yet. And so you see in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I mean, John has been, I mean, he's been weeping loudly through his, um, um, through his you know, red eyes. He's trying to, to look and to, to see what he's told to see. He's trying to, to look and to see a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he sees in heaven the equivalent of what John the Baptist saw on earth. Instead of a lion, he sees the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered by becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the third thing that we see standing here, that there is a lamb who is standing, probably the proper translation is, even though he has been slain and he's worth giving your all to, You see in chapter 5 and verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So see, this is the sacrificial lamb that we've seen throughout the, the whole Old Covenant system. This is the, the sacrificial lamb that, that John the Baptist identified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though he's been slain, he's clearly been slain, he bears the marks of being slain, he is, he is standing. He, he, he is standing in resurrection power. He is standing in resurrection life. He is standing in the, the power of the Holy Spirit so that it, even though he's standing, it's obvious that he's been slain and it's obviously that he's conquered that for which he's been slain. Why was he slain? He was slain as a sacrifice for our sin. That's what they sing of in verse 9, is it not? And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain... And by your blood you ransomed people to God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why is he standing, though? He's standing because your Savior, as he told you in John's Gospel, has the capacity to lay his life down for you, and he has the capacity to take it up again in resurrection life. He is a Savior who, that's the Savior who says to you, look, I have given my all for you. Will you not trust me to give your all to me that I might rescue you and save you? And and, and that's what he's doing here. That's the picture. Notice the, the lamb is standing where? Between the throne and the creatures. The lamb is always standing in between. He is providing the access to that throne. In other words, if you haven't, if you haven't quite caught on yet, uh, the picture that you have here is really the picture version of Ephesians 2 and verse 18. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's the summary of Revelation 4 and 5. Christ is the voice. Christ is, first of all, the person who has opened the door of heaven to you. Christ is the voice that calls you to come through that door. You come through that door in the power of the Holy Spirit to come before the throne of the Heavenly Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit to offer yourself in worship and praise and glory and honor. You know, people say revelation is deep and then they go off the deep end. (laughs) But but you know, when when we come to say, what do we do with this? You don't have to go off the deep end. The answer's right in the text. What effect ought this picture to have on you and me? What impression ought it to make on you and me? Do we we get the impression we should just run around perplexed at whatever is going on? Do do you get the impression that we should debate whatever is going on? Do do you get the we should pat ourselves on the back for the ability to calculate calculate out all the things that are going to happen after this? No. What's the response of the text? That when you see this, you worship Christ as the way of saying, you're worth it. You you, you do know that's where our English word worship comes from? Maybe it's us Southerners that, you know, we normally can put multiple syllables in single syllable words, but for some reason, worth-ship was too hard to say. We're acknowledging your worth-ship. What is that? That's worship. That's That's the etymology of that word, and that's exactly what you see in verse 11 of chapter 5. Then I looked, 
And heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What is the proper response to this picture, to this revelation of Jesus Christ? It's worship. To say, to say you're worth it. That what we see every one of these creatures doing is bowing down before the Lord and saying, Lord, if I received any power or wealth or wisdom or might or honor or glory or blessing, I'm returning that to you. I'm reverberating that back to you to say that you're worth it. You're the thing that I'm after. You're the one that I'm after. I give myself to you without reservation. And no matter what I face, because I've seen your face, I can say in the face of it, Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. Think think about that in terms of John's experience. After John experienced, after John received on this Lord's Day, the revelation that we know is the book of Revelation, where did he go? He went back to Patmos, back into the exile, back into enemy-occupied territory. But let's be honest. Do you think there's any way he left that open door with the same perspective that he had entered? Do you think there's any possible way that he returned to Patmos with the same perspective with which he left. Now I ask you that because you yourself, in just a moment, are going to pass through these doors. And you yourself will go back out into enemy-occupied territory, into the spiritual battle in which we all live the Christian life. Has this revelation changed your perspective on what you will see there, what you will experience there, how you will engage that. How have you changed in passing through these doors? I had the privilege some years ago to pass through a set of doors into a building that many would call the most powerful place on earth, the doors of the White House. Don't, don't overdo it. It was a tour. You know, you used to could call your senator. You'd be in the area. You'd call your senator. You'd say, I'd like to go see the White House. And they'd give you a little ticket. You, you'd go see the White House. We, we're going to see the White House. Amy's, Amy's sister lives up that way. Uh, we were visiting. thought it would be a fun thing to do. Took my nephew with me. Uh, Caleb, even as a young man, um, he is not the one you would want to take to a museum unless you wanted to spend the whole day in the museum. He reads every sign, he asks every question, he just, he just wants to know, and, and he was no different. We, we had just passed through the doors into the White House, and he is already just asking questions about the room, and, what, and, 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 and we move into the, the, just the second room. I mean, we come out of security into the very, really the very first room we're supposed to look out, and, they, and there's already a, a, a Secret Service agent 
doing this number to, to my nephew. And uh, she was super kind, but he was super inquisitive, and he wanted to know about this room and what was that and what was this and about her weapons and about her training and about all. And, and so then we went to the next room, and she happened to go with us. And we went to the next room, and she happened to go with us. I'd like to think at this point we were getting the guided tour, not the guarded tour, but that was never, that was never clarified for us. But, but, but in a moment, we're about, to, uh, we're about to turn up this great staircase. The most out-of-place object stood there. It was, it was like you know this um, fabric-covered accordion divider like in an office cubicle kind of thing. And, and it's just blocking this door. And so I said to our new friend, the Secret Service agent, uh, is that, that the hall to the president's office? Yes, it is. Uh, he, he's down there working today? Yes, he is. You take us down there, we say hello? No. <laughs> you, it, the, the president is a very important man. The president is a very powerful man. He, he is down there very busy making decisions that, that, are, that are running this country and that, that are influencing the world. We ought not to disturb him. So you know what I did? I began to pray. And as I walked up that stairwell into the main lobby of the White House of the United States of America, I thought to myself, who's the most powerful man in the building now? Because I have the access to the king of the cosmos. And without any announcement, without any invitation, without any secret service guard, I came through his open door, I came into his presence in Christ, and he welcomed me to speak to him and to ask of him the things that a child would ask of his heavenly father. And then I pushed that thought just a little further, and I pushed that prayer just a little further, and I went out the doors of the White House, and I went off the grounds of the White House, and I continued to pray out into the city. You know what that did? That made me distinct from any other president that has ever served in the White House. Because every other president, when they leave the White House, they lose all their power. I kept mine because I kept my Christ, because I kept my access. And it changed the way I viewed the things of this world and the things that I was experiencing in this world. Believer in Christ, once again, let me say to you, you too are about to have a similar experience because you too are now going to walk out the doors of this building. When you walk out these doors, will you lose all the power that you've tasted in this room? Will you lose all the perspective that you've had in this room and go back to your horizontal wanderings? Or will you recognize that the voice of Christ has invited you to something glorious. He's invited you to access to heaven, to come before the throne that's at the center of heaven, and to be able to, to apply to your heavenly Father through the mediation of the Lamb who was once slain, who now stands there interceding for you, and to be able to go out into this enemy-occupied territory and say, Lord, whatever I run into, whatever runs into me, you are worth it. You are worth it because you have opened this door to me. And no matter where I go and no matter what I face, that door stands open to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will access it, and I will access it, and I will access it. Until you say, come up here and leave no more. And that is the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And may those of you who have ears to see, see the Lord Jesus Christ as he's freely offered to you in the gospel. May you pass through that open door in heaven into his open arms. And may you know the grace and the love and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Heavenly Father and of the Holy Spirit who has poured into your hearts as the very love of God and the very um, seal of that inheritance. And let's pray to that end. Our God and Father, we thought we were just coming to church. John thought he couldn't come to church. And you opened a door in the midst of the Lord's day. And you enabled us to walk through and to see the things that you would show us. Well, that's a lot like the garden. It's a lot like what Adam and Eve experienced when you beckoned them by coming to them in the garden and said, let me show you who I am. Let me show you what I'm like. Let me show you my lavishness. Let me show you my love and my goodness. Father, may we learn the lessons of the gospel that we need to be rescued from the sin and the sinful condition in which Adam has left us. But you have sent one to do that who is uniquely qualified, who is uniquely worthy to fulfill your divine decree, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are yourself the door that stands open to us. I pray that many in this room will hear the voice of your invitation. They will hear it as your own sheep, and they will follow you to stand before the throne that is inhabited in heaven by our heavenly Father and to offer to him praise and worship and glory and honor and to change the perspective that we have in this world to say that you're worth it. It's worship that you're most glorified when we're most satisfied in you. And so may we walk out of these doors, not dissatisfied, but satisfied in you. And so may we carry the worship that we've had here, out there, and may it shine forth as a beacon of hope and of light to many who are in need of the same. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.